I want to get straight into the word, but before I do that, I want to tell you about a man who made uh, a shaven head popular long before Will made it fashionable. <laughs> and it, it is a little bit before most of your time, but uh, Colin will at least remember a guy called Yul Brynner. Anybody remember Yul Brynner? Go and Google it, some of you young guys. Yul Brynner starred in a very popular movie in the 1950s. And the title of the movie was The King and I. And uh, the events on which the movie was based actually took place many years earlier in about the 1860s. And uh, it's a very interesting kind of uh, situation that happened because there was a king of Siam, which is modern-day uh, Thailand, and he had the desire to modernize and kind of westernize his country. So he thought that he'll start in his own palace, in his own home. And so he had quite a few children, and he heard about a, a, a widowed British school teacher by the name of Anna Leon Owens, and he invited her to come and teach his children the English language and expose, her to, uh, expose them to British culture. And about a hundred years later, there was a book written about the experience and the interaction between uh, the king and Anna. And um, obviously when the movie was made, the book already was a bit fictionalized and the movie was even more romanticized. So um, if you ever go and, and Google it and, and watch the movie, you will see that what was a very stormy relationship ended kind of in an unveiled uh, uh, romantic situation, which is not really the truth. But what, was, what is so interesting about this whole uh, situation is that there were frequent clashes between the king and Anna. And she was a lady where, with a very strong personality. And because their personalities and their cultures clashed, the king would often get very angry at, at, at Anna. And uh, that obviously uh, gave some, some content to, to the whole plot. And I thought about this when I looked at the title, The King and I. Very few ordinary people can actually write their life story and call it The King and I. Because... <laughs> Very few of us ever brush shoulders with royalty. However, if you are a Christian, that is the title of your life story, the king and I. Because God wants to interact with you, but there's, there, there's some differences between um, uh, the story of Anna and the king and the story of us and the king of kings. And here's the first difference. He never needed us. The king of Thailand needed Anna. God doesn't need us, but he still loves us. And he still wants to, to get into a, a relationship with us. The second difference is this, that he didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us. That's amazing for a king to actually come to us. And then the third one, and this is one I want to focus on really, is that he's not angry at us. Because 
for a lot of people today, even within the church, they think of God as an, as an angry God. Now, what I want to do is I want to um, explain this relationship between us and God, and I want to use uh, scriptures mainly from the book of Romans. And it, it's very interesting that when Paul writes this epistle to the Romans, and obviously the Romans lived in Rome, and they spoke Latin, that was their language, but they were also exposed to the Greek culture because at that time, Rome was maybe the, the military power in the world, but the Greeks were involved in trading, etc., etc., and, and uh, uh, Greek became an accepted language even to, to the Romans. They could understand that. They were bilingual, but more than that, the Romans were exposed to the Greek mythology and their so-called gods. And it's very interesting, if you look at the comparison between the Greeks and the Romans, there seemed to have been a God-swapping. <laughs> because um, I, I, I think that they, if they saw something that they didn't have, they said, okay, we're going to adopt uh, one of those gods. So it's very, very interesting that in this setting, Paul writes to them, they had multiple gods, and he comes with a gospel message which was totally revolutionary to them, totally different to their thinking and, and to their culture. Because here's the message that Paul writes to the Romans. He says, there's only one God. He's the true God. And he's a God who loves you. He's not angry at you. He's a God who wants to enter into a personal relationship with you. And he's a God who does not change. He's absolutely faithful. He's reliable. He's dependable. He is not um, uh, one way the one day and, and then changing the next day. And he comes with this radical gospel message. And I want to say this. Even in the church today, the gospel is a radical message if we understand what the gospel is about. And... and especially for some uber-religious people. Now, when I say uber-religious, I'm not talking about someone who prays in a taxi. <laughs> the word uber means over the top. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you get these super-spiritual people, and they have warped the gospel message. And what I want to share with you this morning is absolutely still a, a radical message. And, and I hope today to tackle some religious paradigms where people, you might have to make a, some mental adjustments. I hope to, to tread on some traditional toes. And we'll pray for those toes afterwards. But there are some typical thought patterns that we have developed uh, through religion. We even sometimes, I hear people pray unbiblical prayers that God will never answer because of the way that they think. We, we I, I often, because as I said, we visit uh, many churches, I often hear from pulpits, statements that are made that do not line up with the Word of God at all. And I think it's so important for us to understand what is the true gospel message? 
What is it about? And so I want to speak about this relationship like Anna had with a king, and I want to entitle the sermon, God and Us. Because I want to speak about this relationship between God and us. And I know for some of you this might not be new. It might just confirm some scriptural convictions that you already have. Thank God for that. But I hope that some of you will get an extreme mind makeover this morning. That the Holy Spirit will come and just absolutely renew your thinking in in some areas. So there are three basic truths that I'm going to share with you about this relationship between God and us. And um, they're very basic. But I want you to also notice the, the progressive intimacy of this relationship. And here's the first statement that I want to make. And it's so simple. God for us. That's one of the most basic things that you need to understand if you want to know what the relationship is between God and us. God for us. God is for you. He's your friend. He's on your side. He's not your enemy. And I want to start off in Romans 8, and we're going to come back to to Romans 8 uh, several times. And I want to start in in verse 31, and I'm using the uh, English Standard Version here. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, let me stop there for a moment. Can you see that phrase? God is for us. It's in the Bible. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Can you hear the refrain? He's for us. He's for us. He's for us. He's not against us. Because we have this idea that God is out to get us. I, in fact, heard a preacher once who ended his, his, his sermon and, and, and the service by saying, just watch out because God is going to get you. If I go back to verse 26 of the same chapter, listen what he says about the Holy Spirit. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us. We spoke about that last week. How Jesus became our helper and how the Holy Spirit is our helper. For we don't know what we uh, ought to, uh, to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Let me not read the rest there because I want to save some time. But go and read that passage and you'll see that every time he says, God the Father is for us because he gave his Son for us. Jesus the Son is for us because he gave his life for us. The Holy Spirit is for us because he intercedes for us. So very clearly, this is the radical message of the gospel. God is for us. And that's why that scripture can end with these words that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. 
I'll be honest with you, I can still understand when people out there, ignorant people or unbelievers, think that God is against them because that's, that's their idea of religion. But I tell you what, it upsets me when I hear children of God with the, walking around with the same mentality, that they think that God is against them. And there are so many guilt-ridden believers walking around with heavy condemnation. And I'm sure it's because they don't know God's character. They don't know who he is. I want to take you to Romans 3. And I want to show you a, a scripture here where it clearly says that God is not angry at us. And I want to focus on a very interesting word in this passage. Romans 3 verse 23. And we know the, the first part that I'm going to read. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm sure you've heard that many times. But we tend to stop there, and we know that the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. And we need to read the full truth, because here's what it goes on to say. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Hallelujah. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Now, I'll be honest with you, I had to go and look up the word propitiation, because it's not a common word. You don't hear it in the street. You don't get somebody bump into you and say, how's the preparation of your propitiation coming on? <laughs> it's not that kind of word that you, in fact, it's quite often only used in the church. So I had to go and look up that word. And before I read the rest of that scripture, let me just tell you what, what the word means. Um, and, and it's interesting. Our English word comes from the Latin word, which literally means to turn towards kindness. To change someone's attitude and to win them over to friendliness. To cause them to be gracious. And in fact, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here was something that these Romans would have been familiar with. Because it really speaks in the Greek of bringing a gift so that that gift may change the attitude of the person to host, from hostility or enmity to friendliness. So Paul, let me, let me say this. Paul never invented new words. None of the, the New Testament writers invented new words. They had to use existing words. But here's the beauty of it. God used existing words and gave them deeper, enriched, and different meanings through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because here's what the Greeks were used to. Here's what the Romans were used to. They had angry gods. They had to bring gifts to them and say, please, won't you change your attitude and become friendly towards me? But here's the difference when Paul uses this word. Let me come back to the scripture. He says, God put forward the propitiation. That's the difference. We didn't bring the gift. God brought the gift. Hallelujah. There's no gift that you can bring that will ever score you any points with God. He brought the gift. And, and here's what it says. Uh, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. 
not to appease his anger as they were used to with those false gods, but to show his righteousness. So here's something we need to realize. You didn't have to bring a gift because God wasn't angry at you. No gift that you could bring could ever be adequate. And God himself gave the gift, which is Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Not to pacify him, not to appease him. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about, about the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods. And as I said, they had their, their own counterparts. Um, the, the Greeks, the chief god was called Zeus. His Roman counterpart was called Jupiter. If you ever see a picture or a statue of Jupiter, he was depicted with, uh, with a lot of um, lightning bolts in his hand. Because here's what happened. If you would take a wrong step, <laughs> he would hurl one of those, those lightning bolts at you. Because he was angry. And he had to be appeased. Then they had uh, a, another god which the Greeks called Apollo. And if you see pictures or paintings of Apollo or statues, you will always see him with a bow and an arrow, and he had these plague arrows that he shot at people because he was angry at them. And you, you can go through those lists of gods. You, you, you take uh, Poseidon. The Roman counterpart was Neptune, the god of the seas. He's always shown with a trident in his hand. And what did he do? When he got angry, he would hit the sea with that trident and cause violent storms or earthquakes because they were all angry gods. Then I want to mention one, one more god. The Greeks knew him as Hermes, but he was better known by his Roman name, Mercury. Now, if you can remember, I know it's hundreds of years ago that you were at school, but if you can remember... <laughs> If you can remember, there's one metal that is in a liquid form at room temperature. And that is called mercury, named after this god. Why was this metal named after this god? Because mercury, the metal, is very volatile. I remember our science teacher telling us, just be careful how you handle this. Because you don't know what it's going to do. That is exactly what this god was all about. You never knew what he was up to. Because he was a, a shapeshifter. He was a changer. The one day he would be like this, the other day he would be like that. And it's in this setting, let me say again, that Paul comes with a radical message. He says, there's one God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Absolutely reliable, absolutely loving. A, 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 a God that is, is, is chasing you with his grace. And that's the message. And so when Paul uses this word propitiation, he's not saying you need to bring a gift so that you can appease his anger. He's saying God himself wants to show his righteousness. That's why he brought the gift. Hallelujah. Let me take you to Romans 5. Because here it clearly says that God is, is not angry at us. Because in verse 8, it says in the NIV, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Do you know that God does not hate sinners? God is not angry at sinners. He hates sin. But God loved you while you were still a sinner. Can you imagine how much he loves you now? Or how much you can enjoy his love? Let me just put it that way because I don't think that, that God's love fluctuates. He cannot even increase in love. But you can experience so much more about God's love now that you are his child. So I want to say this. God is not mad at you. He's mad about you. <laughs> he loves you. He loves you. Go and read the rest of that scripture. How it says that, that, um, that we were reconciled to him. And uh, through the death of his son. And, and how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life. I want to say something about that reconciliation in a moment. But there's just one little word that I added there. You see it speaks of God's wrath. God's anger. I just added the word future there. Because if you read it you'll see that it's future tense. How much more shall we be saved? Can you see? future tense, from God's anger. Right now, God's throne is a throne of grace. There will be a throne of judgment one day. But right now, we are privileged to live in the era of grace. Hallelujah. Thank God for that. And let me say this. God is not an angry God. God can get angry. I'm sure you know some people that are angry people. They're angry all the time. It takes just a little bit to make them explode. God is not an angry God. He's a loving God. He's a gracious God. We need to understand that. Now, I wish I had more time to speak about reconciliation, but here's some homework that you can go and do, and I want to challenge you, and if I'm wrong, I'll repent publicly. But nowhere in the New Testament ever does it say that God was reconciled to us. Every time it speaks of, of reconciliation, it says that we were reconciled to God because we had the problem. God never had an issue with us. He loved us. We were the ones who were enemies of God because that's what, what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. We had the issue. We had to be reconciled with God. He's the one that caused the reconciliation. So God is a loving God. He's not an angry God. And God loves you. God is for you. He's not against you. And that's what we need to, to, to realize. So as I said, this is the radical message that, that Paul brings here. Go and see how God describes himself in his word. Jesus introduced him to us as a father. Not as some foreigner. Jesus himself is the good shepherd. Not the one with a shambok. But the good shepherd who cares for you. The Holy Spirit is called our helper, our advocate. Not the one who condemns us. He's the comforter. But, but we grew up with this. I mean, Colin again, because we've been friends for many, many years, he will know we, we used to sing a song in Afrikaans. Pas op kleine oogies waar jylle kyk. 
and we were threatened in Sunday school already <laughs> that God is watching and it, just watch how you, how you walk. Here's a simple song, but it's so true. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the truth. That's the message of the gospel. Because God is for us. Here's the second way to describe this relationship between God and us. God is not just for us. God is with us. Let me go back to, to Romans 8 and show you that there's a beautiful sharing relationship, an intimate interaction, and, and it speaks about God as our constant companion. It says in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So that means that we are in a relationship with God, with Christ. And God is with us, as I said, a constant companion. Now, towards the end of Romans in chapter 15 and verse 33, there's an interesting scripture that I want us to, to see. It's a, it plainly says this, and, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, you can see there that I've printed it in italics and I've underlined the word be. Why? Because if you have a good study Bible, you'll find that that word should be in italics, which indicates it's not there in the original Greek. Because sometimes when you translate from one language to the other, you tend to, to add some words to try and make sense of the idiom of the original language. And this is what the translators did. But unfortunately, in some translations, they even put it this way. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's not there, the word be. So here's how that phrase should read. The God of peace with you all. It's not a prayer. It's not even a wish. It's not a hope. It's a statement of fact. And here's what I said earlier. We, we, I often hear in churches when they, when they end their services, may God be with you this week. This is a statement where we don't even need the be here. It's a, it's a confident declaration. I hear some people, and they pray sincerely, but sincerely wrong. <laughs> when they go on a journey, God, please go with us. I prayed that thousands of times until I've realized, here's what he promised. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And even if I don't feel his presence, he's there because he promised that. So what should we pray when we go on a journey? Instead of saying, God, please go with us, stand on his promise, say, God, I know your word says you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. You are with us every nanosecond of this journey. 
And I thank you that your word promises that you give your angels charge over us to protect us. Just change the angle of your unscriptural prayer. <laughs> say amen, say aina, say aish, say something because it's true. We pray these unscriptural prayers. Now, if you would allow me, I'm going to try and do it as compassionately as possible. But I want to comment, comment on a famous hymn that I'm sure was written with, with great sincerity. And I don't want to be too harsh. I don't want to be hypocritical here. But there's a key phrase in this well-known hymn often sang at Christian funerals and sang at the FA Cup final since 1927. Abide with me. Have you ever heard the song, Abide with me? It's unscriptural. How come I need to ask God, abide with me, if he promised I'll be with you until the end of the days? Beautiful song, but can we not change it and sing, you are with me? even when I go through the, the valley of the shadow of death. Wow. Now, I, I want you to listen to this. Where, where are the guys from the praise and worship team? They, they blessed us so much. Let me speak to them. This gives a new expression of preaching to the choir. <laughs> or let me, let me say something about them. I often hear, as I said, unbiblical statements from the pulpit. And I hear some people, uh, some preachers saying, the praise and worship team are now going to lead us into the presence of God. Lead us into the presence of God. God was here before you arrived because he's omnipresent. And there's no one leading us into the presence of God. Jesus already did that. I know I grew up, and you'll be familiar with this, these statements. You need to pray through. Through what? <laughs> I'm already through. Because Jesus is the way. He's the door. His body was the veil that was split open. I have access into the presence of God. And here's what the, the guys do in, in the worship team. They don't lead us into the presence of God. They can make us aware of the presence of God. That's what, what anointed music and singing, that's what it's supposed to do. Create an awareness of, of the presence of God. And I want to say this, that we can understand it. We don't worship to get into God's presence. We realize that we are in God's presence, therefore we worship. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I have to refer back to these things, but this is messages for Colin this morning. <laughs> Remember the song that we used to sing, uh, I'm going to sing it till the power of the, of the Lord comes down. Oh, my word. <laughs> I spoke last week about the fact that Jesus taught that God is not far away. Remember those Greek philosophers that we spoke about? 
And um, sometimes we hear these songs and, and there's a beautiful song with, let me rather say, with a nice melody, the, the lyrics are sweet, sentimental, stupid, syrupy rubbish. Bette Midler used to sing this. God is watching us from a distance. Nice song, but totally unscriptural lyrics. God is not watching us from a distance. Here's the radical message of the gospel. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Not God far away from us, watching us from a distance. Adrian, you might remember this about a pastor that said to a young man, you're not praying loud enough. <laughs> God cannot hear you. As if, you know, I need to pray loud enough to wake God up. I love what A.W. Tozer says. He says, we need never shout across the spaces to an absent God. He is nearer than our own soul closer than our most secret thoughts. He's with us. He's with us. He's with us all the time. <laughs> One of my favorite stories uh, is about uh, in children's church where they were teaching about the fact that God is present, whether I can feel him, whether I could see him or not. And at the end of the lesson, the teacher said, how many of you have had an experience where you could not see or feel God but you knew that he was there. And this one little girl put her hand up. She says, I, I wanna tell you something. She says, I know that God is with us because when my mom and I go to the shopping mall, they have these huge glass doors. And as we come close to these doors, God just opens them up. <laughs> He's with us. I love that. And I tell you what, what Cora and I have done. Because here's, here's the truth. God is not just with you here in the gathering of the saints. God is with you when you go do shopping. And Cora and I would often, when we encounter these automatic doors, we would look at each other and we would say, God with us. <laughs> and I think that's a reminder of what you need to do. Because there was a, there's a beautiful... Um, book, and I forget the guy's name, uh, Brother, is it Brother Lawrence? Uh, about about uh, practicing the presence of God. It's an old book. This guy was, a, he, he didn't even qualify to be a monk. He worked in the kitchen of, of the monastery for many, many years. And then um, out of his, uh, his experiences, Somebody compiled this book out of conversations and letters and things that he had. And here's what he said. You need to live in a constant awareness of the presence of God. That needs to become your practice. He's there not just when you come to this gathering of the saints. He's with you all the time. Oh, I wish I had more time. There's a beautiful scripture in Hebrews uh, 13 and verse 5. I alluded to it earlier where it says, where 
it says, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And I wish I could have shown you the, what the Greek says there. What is so interesting in this verse, in this sentence here, there are five negatives in the Greek. It's almost impossible to translate it in English. And here's what, what the author wants to emphasize. And let me read it to you from the Amplified because I think the Amplified comes the closest to this. It says that God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give up on you, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down, nor relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. He's with us. Whether I can see him, whether I can feel him, he's there. Let me get to the last way to describe this relationship, and it's God in us. How intimate is that? How radical is that? Only Christianity that actually has this radical message. And going back to the, the book of Romans in chapter 8 again, in verse 9 it says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and in, in, in the next verse he says, Christ is in you. In uh, uh, verse 11 he says, The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He says it in the, in, in the following verse. Four times he speaks about God living in us. That's the radical message of the gospel. And again, I want to say this. You need to become God-inside-minded. You need to live in a total alertness and awareness of God's indwelling presence. Not just with you, but in you. And that's why John could say this. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And sometimes we, uh, I, I, I mean, as I say, we, we pray these unscriptural prayers. I've often heard this about the Holy Spirit. Lord, pour it on us. In the first place, the Holy Spirit's not an it. He's a person. And he, he's already been poured out. We need to become aware of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what I love. When Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, spoke to his disciples and introduced them to the comfort of the Holy Spirit that would come, he said to them, he is with you now, I'm just paraphrasing, and he says, he will be in you, and he will abide in you. He's there in you. So I'm not, I'm not calling to God that is far away. And you know, sometimes when we need help, when we need guidance, we look for something on the outside, an external sign. Can I get a sign or a prophecy or a word? Thank God for those, but that's his prerogative. I need to become aware of the indwelling presence. And I need to listen to that voice inside. And I want to say this, your heart is actually like a fridge. And I'm not saying you have a cold heart. I want to use another angle of that illustration. You know what, especially on, I, I remember traditionally Sunday lunch used to be a big lunch. And then you kind of didn't feel like eating in the evening, but later in the night you started feeling peckish, but you didn't want everybody else in the house to know. 
but you can sneak up to the fridge, and here's the, the great thing, you don't need to switch the lights on, because the moment you open the door, <laughs> the light goes on. And there's a beautiful scripture in Proverbs that says the following, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. Wow. So if I need any illumination, if I need light on a subject, here's where I need to look first. Because the light will come on. Amen. And here's where God wants to speak to me. I'm so glad when Jesus uh, spoke about the Holy Spirit and he called him the advocate, when he said that he will come and he will be in you. I'm so glad that this advocate of ours does not have offices somewhere in, in the inner city, somewhere where you don't have parking. He said he'll be in you. These are the offices of the advocate. He lives in you. He will guide you. He'll help you. Jesus said he'll never leave you. He'll stay there. I want to put it this way. You have a guide that will reside and abide inside. <laughs> Always. He's there. Let me conclude with this. I said to you earlier that in Romans 15.33, it says the God of peace with you all, not with a bee. And in chapter 16, Paul says the same thing or similar thing. He says in verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and again I'm reading from the New King James, says be with you. And again, that word be is not there in the original. So again, it's not a wish or a hope or a prayer, but it is a confident declaration. And Cora and I, and, and, and sometimes we remind each other of that, we will often uh, start our day with, with the words from Second th uh, uh, Corinthians 13. It's the last verse. Sometimes it's verse 14. Sometimes it's verse 13. So uh, whatever it is, um, here's what it says. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the bee should fly away should not be there with you all. You should get up with this expectation in the morning. What can I expect today? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my expectation. The love of God the Father and the sweet and intimate fellowship and companionship of the Holy Spirit with you. God for you. God with you. God in you. What a radical, revolutionary message. Amen. Let's stand.